These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east where he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flowed east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning, church. How are we doing? Good. I'm ready to study God's word with you this morning. Over the past three weeks, we've been studying the first chapter of the Bible. We are going to continue to study the first, cha- the first uh, book of the Bible for the next 11 months or so. We will be in Genesis for quite a little while. And we've been learning about how God made all things in that first chapter. And today we start a new chapter, even though last week was in chapter two, I told you that the person who added the chapters just did it wrong. Um, you know, had one job, he fails on the first page, uh, it's not going good from there. The, the chapters make no sense in the Bible uh, a lot of times. But today we actually do start the next section of the scriptures. And the way that we know that it's the next section is it says this, verse four, look with me if you have your Bibles, turn those, open those up, we're going to be in our Bibles today, all right? Um, Chapter 2, verse 4 says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the heaven, the earth and the heavens. These words, these are the generations. These are words that appear throughout the Genesis narrative over and over again. They appear ten times throughout the Genesis narrative, and each time they appear, this little phrase, these are the generations, this is uh, the, the author indicating to us that we have a new section of scripture that we're looking at. So when we get to Adam uh, in a little bit, 
um, in the middle of chapter, uh, at the beginning of chapter five, it says these are the generations of Adam, and then it gives the genealogy of Adam. When you get to Noah in the middle of chapter seven, it says these are the generations of Noah. Over and over again, the author indicates new sections of scripture by saying these are the generations. So here we are in a new section of scripture, and it says these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. We have a new major section. When we get to this section, what we actually see happening is a lot of the story that we already learned in Genesis 1 is being repeated. It's not a second narrative. It is a second perspective on the same narrative that we just heard. When you read Genesis, I want you to think about Genesis chapter 1 being the prologue, being the the opening chapter that kind of frames the way that we look at this. And then when we get to Genesis chapter 2, what we're actually doing, what the author is doing, is he's not continuing the story. The author is actually saying, okay, now we're zooming in and we're seeing the beginning of this story that we just saw. It kind of picks up in day 6. He he backs up just a little bit, he zooms in, and he gives us a new angle on it. He tells us a story from a different perspective. It's not the same story that he's just continuing on. We're, We're kind of picking it up from a new angle. And the key to understanding this angle of the story that he's writing about is found right there in that next line. So it says, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. And then the next section, it says this, in the day that the... You say it, Lord God made the earth and the heavens in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When you get to Lord, you might notice something precarious or different about that word. It's in all caps. And if you've been around the church for a little while, you'll understand and already know what's going on when when you see the word the Lord in all caps. What it's referring to when it says the Lord in all caps is the sacred name of God, Yahweh. The sacred name of God, Yahweh. This is the first time in all of the scriptures where the name of God is said. And so God is being addressed in a different kind of way. He's being addressed in his personal name. This is the name of the Lord, Yahweh. Now why is it appearing in your Bibles, most of your Bibles, in in Genesis chapter 2 as the Lord in all caps? Why is it appearing like that? Some of you have different Bibles that say it differently. But it appears like that because throughout the years, throughout the generations, the Hebrew people found the name of the Lord to be sacred. And so when they would get to the name of the Lord as they were reading their Hebrew scriptures, they actually would not even say the word Yahweh when they got to it. Instead, they would say the other Hebrew word for, uh, for Lord, which is not sacred, which is Adonai. It's just the um, more general term for Lord, like you were the Lord of this land, uh, Adonai. And so when the, when the interpreters, when the translators got to this passage, instead of typing the word that is actually used for God's name, Yahweh, they carried on this tradition of just using a more generic term, but signifying it in all caps. So when you read your Bible and you see Lord in like normal lowercase, that's just Adonai, Lord. And when you see it in all caps, that is uh, the Lord, Yahweh. Now just a little bit more history. This is just for free here. This actually isn't uh, very uh, tied into the sermon. But uh, what translators ended up doing over the years is they would take the, con- the consonants from Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, And then they started adding in the vowels from Adonai. 
And what they did is they formed a whole new word, and that word is Jehovah. So the word Jehovah, you've heard that, most of us have heard that word for, for God somewhere uh, in our lives. Uh, that word is a made-up word. It doesn't actually appear in Scripture. It's just Yahweh and Adonai kind of sandwiched together in a new kind of word. That's what it is. So now we have this first time that we see the sacred name of God, Yahweh. This name change to an original reader, to someone who's hearing it in the Hebrew, would have been so obvious. For us, we think of the Lord and God as just being these interchangeable words. We might say one or the other, just depending on what type of mood we're in. You know, how am I feeling today? I feel like calling him Lord or God. It doesn't matter. You know, it's the same thing. But no, the original readers, when they got to that word, they would see it. Their eyes would light up. Up until this point, God's been called Elohim. That's the more general term for God, Elohim. But now we're to Yahweh. And this term for Yahweh, it's meant to help us to see that this is not some distant, abstract, general, vague God. But this God has a name. This God is a person. This God is personal. And he has an intimate relationship with his creation. That's the main idea of this passage. That we're meant to see that this God has a name and is Yahweh. And that he is a personal God who loves and cares for his creation. We are created by a God who longs to know us. We are created by a God who loves to care for us. You see, when you come to this passage, it is really easy to miss the forest for the trees. You've heard that statement before. Uh, the reason why it's easy to miss the forest from the trees is because you keep on running into trees as you're going through this passage. As you're reading this, I almost guarantee you, you had a ton of questions about a variety of different scientific things. Like, how does that work with evolution, all of that sort of thing. But let me tell you, as you read this passage, you are not to read this passage like it's a biology textbook. It's not intending to be a biology textbook. And when you read it like a biology textbook, you're going to run into a tree. You're also not to read this passage like a history textbook. It's not meant to be read as a textbook. We're taking our 21st century lens and reading the text in the way that our 21st century person thinks about the way things should be written. But you have to listen to this as an ancient person might listen to it. If you look at it just as a history book or just as a biology book, you're going to have a tree in your face and you're going to miss the forest. So friends, let's look for the forest, right? Let's look for the forest. Let's look for what this passage is actually teaching us. And this passage is teaching us that our God is not some vague, abstract God without a name, but he is a personal God, Yahweh God, who just longs to know us and love us. Yahweh created people and loves people. And his sincere love and care is shown in three different gifts that we see in this passage. Yahweh gives us three different things. He gives people three different things. The first thing that he gives them is divine breath. The second thing that he gives them is provision. And the third thing that he gives is marriage, the third gift that we get to. So let's walk through these three gifts that we see our personal God giving us today. First, the gift of divine breath. Verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, 
For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now, this is a confusing passage. It took me a little while to get this. And every time I've read it, it's been a little confusing to me. Because, as I, as I said, what we're doing here is not continuing the same narrative that we had in Genesis chapter 1, but we're actually backing up a little bit in the story. We're zooming in a little bit in the story. We're seeing it from a different perspective. And so when it says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field yet had sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, there was no man to work the ground. I don't actually think that it's saying that there was never any rain, that it had not rained yet at all in the creation of the earth. Instead, I think what it's saying is, it's the dry season. It hasn't rained yet in a little while. It hasn't rained. No bush of the field was yet in the land, not meaning that it had never been in the land, but no bush of the field was yet in the land. No small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land. I don't think it's saying never rain, but it just wasn't, it was dry. And there was no man to work the ground. Now, I do think that there was no man yet. And a mist was going up. Now, most of your Bibles is going to have a superscription on mist, saying, or it could mean spring. And a spring was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. What we're supposed to be seeing here is that the ground is untended because humans are not there. So don't get distracted by what order creation is in and how that compares to chapter one. What you're supposed to see here is that things were a mess because humans weren't around to take care of everything that was happening. And then verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now when we come to this, I know that you have questions about evolution. And I'm here to say that the last science class that I took was in 10th grade. And so I do not have all the answers to your questions on evolution. But I can teach you what this text is teaching us. Remember, this is no biology textbook. This is not to be an exhaustive account of the entire ways and mechanisms in which humans were formed. It's one line. That's all. It's not meant to tell you everything. It's meant to communicate what it's meant to communicate. I might not be able to answer all your questions about evolution, but afterwards at the Q&A, we would love to handle more of your questions. Jonathan, PhD in evolutionary biology, he's got lots of opinions about these things. I can tell you some things that I don't think that this passage is teaching. I think, and, and with evolution, I'll tell you this. At least I'll give you my two cents right now so you, you don't have to stay at the Q&A the whole time. I think there's some aspects of it as a worldview that are incompatible with Christianity because survival of the fittest just doesn't really work with Jesus telling us to watch out for the vulnerable and to love our enemy. That's not exactly survival of the fittest. So I think that there's some aspects of Darwinian philosophy that as Christians we have to reject. But I would love for you to come and hear all the scientific reasons uh, to, to accept or to reject it after the, the worship gathering today with the Q&A. This passage, when we look at it, what is happening? But we see, verse 7, then Yahweh, God, Form the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils 
the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. This is a beautiful description of God's heart for humanity. That the God of the universe, the one who created everything, who holds it all in his hand, would get down in the dirt with his creation, with the one who made it all, would look him face in the face and would breathe the breath of life, divine life, into his nostrils. It's this intimate, tender scene between God and his creation. Every human being here is a descendant of this first man and has the very breath of Yahweh in their lungs. The Genesis commentator, uh, Derek Kidner, puts it like this. Breathed is warmly personal with a face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that. When you think about God loving his creation like this, it helps you understand the rest of the Bible and how he's a jealous God. Because as we people chase after other things, other gods, worship other gods, he's like, but I got down in the dirt and I breathed my own life into your soul. I I made you, I created you. And when we think about God creating us and when we think about our relationship with God, what we usually think about is what's in it for me? Why do I want this relationship with God? Why, Why would I want to know God? But here, the question that's begged is what's in it for God? Why does he get down in the dirt and breathe his own breath into his own creation? And there's really just a simple answer for it. It's one so simple that a child can understand, but yet we forget it so often. And it's just this, for his own pleasure. Because he delights in it, and he delights to love. He loves us. He created someone in his own image that he could love. He is a personal God with a name who wants people to love who intimately cares for his creation. It's profound that this ultimately powerful God would get down into the dirt with his own creation out of love. And God is actually fond of his creation. I think we're taught from a young age that God loves you. But we're also taught from a young age that you can love someone without liking them, right? And that's how I usually think about my relationship with God is he loves me, he doesn't necessarily like me. I'm a, I'm a rebel. I'm a sinner. Uh, but yeah, you know, he's still gracious. But no, we see here an intimately passionate scene, a tender scene where the God of the universe looks face to face and breathes life into man's nostrils. And church, that comes with a type of love that's not just abstract love, but is a, a certain fondness. This God, he longs for us to draw near and for us to be close. He actually wants us. It's not just us wanting him. He actually wants us. He wants us so much that after we rebelled, which we'll get to next week, we'll talk about the first rebellion of man and sin, but after we rebelled, this God was so passionate about restoring the relationship that he entered creation himself and bore the penalty for the people that he breathed life into. 
that's not an abstract, distant kind of love. That's a personal, intimate, passionate kind of care and fondness for creation. When you're seeking the Lord, this week when you're seeking the Lord, and you say, oh, I don't know if I want to open my Bible. I don't know if I really want to pursue him. God is saying to you, let me see your face. Let me see your face. And it's like, really, God, it's like early. You don't want to see my face. It's kind of, uh, you know, off-center. I don't know. Let me see your face. Let me see your face. Uh, okay, God, I'll open my Bible. Let me hear your voice. You see, God is fond of us. He wants us to draw near. He creates us so that we can love him, adore him, and delight in him. God establishes this tender, intimate relationship with man, and he pursues after us in love and care. And we're meant to see the personal nature of Yahweh here. The second gift that God gives us after the, the breath, the divine breath that he gives us is the gift of provision. And in verse eight, it says this, and the Lord God planted an, a garden in Eden in the east, and there was a man, and there he put the man whom he had formed. <laughs> Look at this. God's already given him creation, but now God is going and cultivating it for him. He's putting together a garden and he just puts man there. What did Adam do to deserve this? Nothing. God put it all together. And he put man there. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. I love that. He could have just made it good for food, but it's pleasant to the sight as well. Some of us might go leaf peeping in the next couple of weeks. God made the trees pleasant to sight. Nature, pleasant to sight, something that we might enjoy, that we might take delight in, because he wants us to take delight. He could have just made food to eat and trees that grow food, but no, he gave good trees for good sight and good food. He's generous. For the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All this was a gift to Adam. He didn't do anything to deserve it. And then he tells man that he can eat from the, every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To disobey and to eat the fruit would bring sure death. And I need to cover that because this is all part of the same story in Genesis chapter 3. There's a good reason to see how the story continues. And really this chapter and the next chapter really kind of one narrative. And so we need to cover that because it's really planting the seeds for what we're going to learn about next week, but I don't have time to go into the trees completely today. Next week, come back. God's heart for Adam, though, here is seen in the gift of the garden that reflects his loving care for all of humanity. He delights to give us everything we need. As you look at your life, how often are you stressed about God's provision? I know I am. After preaching on, on Sabbath, I felt like the Lord was asking me to make changes in my life this past week, and some of those changes come with financial repercussions, things that I need to prioritize that might mean that I, I don't have as much coming in, um, and that is stressful. It is stressful to think about not having enough. How often does our stress focus around money? 
and provision. But here, we see God giving the people everything they need. And friends, I know we oftentimes go to God asking for provision, which is good. He, he delights to hear your voice. But just as we were talking about in the liturgy earlier, let's look back at all the ways that he has provided. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. He delights to give us everything that we need, church. God delights to give you everything you need. And he delights to hear your voice asking for his provision. He is a personal God who loves to provide for us. And here we see God's gift of provision to the first humans in the garden. So God has given Adam the gift of his own breath and his own provision. Now, the gift of marriage. The gift of marriage. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. If you've been following along in the text, you'll, you'll recognize that there's been a refrain that has been repeated over and over again. As God has made things in Genesis 1, the author's coming back to one of those refrains where he says it is good, it is good, it is good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then we get to the creation of man, and he says for the first time, and it was not good. And it was not good for a very particular thing. One thing was not good, and it was that man was alone. This would stand out as we read it. Yahweh God says it is not good for man to be alone. And so what does he do? It says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, when we get to this term, uh, we read that helper word, and it immediately uh, feels derogatory to us as we think about it. Uh, It's not generally the way that we want to think about uh, a husband and a wife, a wife being a helper, but this term helper is not meant to be derogatory whatsoever in this passage. When we look at the, all of the scriptures and when this term for helper appears, it appears at least seven times in reference to God himself. That God is our helper. And the very nature of being a helper means that you are one in strength, reaching out to one in weakness, that you may help them. It is not meant to be a derogatory term. The term fit for him, I I will create a helper fit for him, might be literally translated like opposite him. Isn't that cool? Like opposite him. He needs someone who is like him but different. Someone who is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, but who is also opposite. And so what does God do? He tells Adam to go through all, all the creation, all the created things, all the created animals, and to give them names and to look for a helper fit for him. And as man went through them, he got to dogs, and he said, that's close, but not there. He got to cats, and he's like, definitely not that one. And he eventually realized that there was nothing in creation that could serve as his helper. I think that's the oldest preacher joke in the history of preacher jokes. Every preacher has done that one. Um, And so what God did is the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. Now, this is actually a deep sleep. We're going to see this term again in a few chapters. In in Genesis 15, when Abraham is in a deep sleep and God establishes a covenant 
with Abraham. It's one of my favorite passages in the entire scripture. I can't wait to get to it. It's very awesome. Um, But with this one, we see a deep sleep fall upon Adam. And while he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. I don't think anyone's ever described this passage uh, better than the Puritan Matthew Henry, uh, the British Puritan Matthew Henry. And he says this, that the woman was not made out of the head to top him, not out of the feet to be trampled on upon him, or, or to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be beloved by him. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. This view of God bringing the woman to man. It's like a proud father walking his daughter down the aisle to her groom. God is proud of his creation. And he's proud of this covenant marriage that he's forming, this thing that can finally replicate and reflect His love for humans can finally, something that can reflect the good news of the gospel of two people desperately in love with one another, giving themselves completely for one another, who become one flesh. Verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now with this passage, The author is giving instruction, not just to Adam and Eve, but to all of humanity. And we know that because Adam and Eve had no father and mother, but yet he's saying that husband and wife will leave father and mother and become one flesh. And so he's given us this illustration to help us to understand that when a a couple gets married, they're forming a new family and they're, they're establishing a new covenant. And, and it's actually quite profound because in ancient civilization, a husband would not actually leave his family. A husband would stay with his family. He'd be given a wife by another family, and then that woman would come and live with him in their new home. But yet it says that both husband and wife leave father and mother. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. A man would never do that, but figuratively, a man is called to leave his family for his wife and to become one flesh. Now, this is obviously talking about sex. Uh, It could be talking about, and it is talking about much more than sex. But sex is what we see as the covenant renewal ceremony that celebrates this aspect of these two people who have become one flesh. And so it's like a, a miniature representation of what happens in a wedding ceremony. It's a covenant renewal ceremony. You're being reminded that I belong to you and you belong to me. And that we are one with that act. And that act actually does a lot more than just physical union. Our world would like to say that sex is just sex. It's just something that we do for pleasure. But God's design for sex is so much bigger than that. God's design for sex says that when we have sex, that the ramifications aren't just physical, 
but we're being knit together, one flesh, in a spiritual, psychological kind of way, which means that we were not really intended to have multiple sexual partners. Sex is meant to be a reinforcement of the one flesh union between a husband and a wife as the two are knitted together. Casual sex is meant to look all harmless and fine in the, in the movies and in the sitcoms, like it doesn't really matter, but friends, the consequences are dire. The consequences are dire. Casual sex, it leads to emptiness, brokenness, and devastation because it's, it's actually doing harm to this one flesh union. It's ripping it apart, and that's why every bad breakup that I've ever witnessed, and as a pastor, I get to walk through a lot of bad breakups with people, but almost every one that was really particularly bad had, they were sexually active in, in the relationship because it's not meant to be found outside of that covenant that I give you all of me. You see, sex without marriage says you can have this physical part of me, but I'm keeping the rest to myself. I'm not committing to you financially. I'm not committing to you uh, so, uh, uh, psych- psychologically, sociologically, whatever it might be. I'm not committing completely. I'm just giving you this small part. But the very act itself is designed by God to bring full commitment, full commitment. And so when we practice it outside of the way that God designed in the, in the, in the owner's manual of how our bodies and how our, our souls work, it breaks, it doesn't work quite right. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. And God gave them this gift. This is the the gift of marriage. Because only in marriage can you be fully known, naked, and fully loved, not ashamed. Fully known, fully loved. This is what we long for the most. And it takes a depth of human relationship that only years and years can add to as we're committed completely to one another. I've been married to my wife for 12 years. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel more known by her than any human will ever know me, Lord willing. And I'm so thankful that she knows me in that kind of way and that I get to know her. Yet, I still feel loved by her. She sees all my warts, uh, all, of my, all of my personality quirks, which you guys see a lot of as well. Um, and um, she loves me the same. And this is meant to symbolize the way that God loves us as his people. And so he places them in a garden, the man and the woman, naked and unashamed. That they might be loved, and unashamed, and known. This points us to the reality of the gospel, that in the gospel, we're both fully known and fully loved. Much like in a marriage, in your relationship with God, you are fully known. There is no hiding. There is no hiding. He can see through whatever clothes you try to put on yourself, figuratively, and physically, I suppose. I don't know. I've never seen super sight as one of the, x-ray vision as one of the depictions of God. Um, 
But he can see, he can see down to your bones. He can see your motives, your desires, the things you long for. Yet, when you are found in Christ, he loves you still. You can be naked and unashamed with God. Not because you yourself are beautiful, because you are united with Christ as this third member of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity. You're you're united with him. And you're covered in his righteousness. And he knows you and loves you the same. Marriage is meant to reflect this. We learn this in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says, he quotes this passage. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that refers to Christ and the church. The mystery of marriage is to reflect the beauty of the way that God loves his people. That's why he created it. It is a symbol and a sign pointing forward to a greater reality that we have in Christ. That God loves his creation so much that he gave them an image that could reflect the sort of intimacy that he desires to have with us. When we trust in Christ, we're united with God like a husband is with a wife. And so marriage, we see here as a great gift from God, meant to reflect the gospel. But before we close this chapter, I just want to take a moment uh, to recognize that singleness is also honored by God as a gift from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that singleness is given to us as a gift. And while God said in Genesis chapter 2 that it's not good for man to be alone, 1 Corinthians does call singleness a gift. And I know that some of the single folks in here are rolling their eyes at me at the moment. But friends, let me tell you that the gift of singleness is not meant to be a superpower. The gift of singleness is just the state of singleness. Just like the gift of marriage is the state of marriage, that you are married So therefore you have received the gift of marriage. Or you are single, so therefore you have the gift of singleness. And the gift of singleness is described in scripture as being allowing you to um, dedicate yourself more to the Lord completely. You can dedicate more of your time and attention to God and to his church without the distractions at home. So unlike Adam in the garden, Single people today are not fully alone. They're surrounded by people who can, they can relate to with as a brother and a sister and a fellow image bearer. And I think that as we think about the gift of marriage and singleness in the church, we need to emphasize that in the church, a single person should not feel alone. That we as the church family, married, single, and the like, should come around all of our friends and be family for one another. The Bible begins with a wedding, friends, and it ends with a wedding. The book of Revelation describes Jesus returning one day as a groom pursuing his bride, and our union with Christ will be consummated and we'll live with with him forever in the new heavens and new earth. And I love how Rebecca McLaughlin puts this. She says, at the resurrection, no one who has chosen Jesus over sexual fulfillment will have missed out. 
Compared with that relationship, human marriage will seem like a toy car next to a Tesla or a kiss on an envelope versus a lover's embrace. And so friends, we don't just look at the gifts that God has given us as the ultimate ends. Oftentimes we look at marriage like that, like that's my goal, I wanna get married. But the reality is marriage reflects this greater reality about who we are in Christ. That God desires to have an intimate, personal relationship with us, a tender relationship, the type of relationship where he looks us in the face and breathes life into our bodies. And this is the intention of marriage. So don't get so, if you're single or your marriage just isn't going that great, don't get so stuck on the gift that you miss, the symbol that the gift is supposed to point to, this greater reality. Friends, our God, this Yahweh, is a personal God who gives good gifts to his people. One of those good gifts that we enjoy every week is a reminder that he is going to return and consummate the marriage and there's going to be a wedding feast and we're going to eat and enjoy his presence in full and we get to be reminded that each week as we take a communion meal that we're longing for the day for him to come and make the world complete again where we can enjoy that relationship in full and not just in part as we have today. Father, I thank you Um, for the good gifts that you have given us. I thank you that you desire to know us. And I pray for anyone here who feels like you are just this distant, absent God, that they might know the God who has a name, the God who is desiring to know us, who is fond of us, who out of love sent his son to perish for us so that we might be made one with him and, and, and reunited with you in, in relationship and delight in the Trinity. And God, as we take this meal, God, we pray that you'll be with us, that we'll feel your presence, and that we'll long for the kingdom to come. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.